0: On this episode of the Engendered Podcast, our guest is Dr. Jessica Taylor, founder and owner of Victim Focus, an organization providing research, consultancy, and thought leadership in forensic psychology, feminism, and mental health. We speak with Jessica today about her book, Why Women Are Blamed for Everything, which covers the psychology of victim blaming and self-blame of women who have been subjected to sexual violence and abuse. We explore the double bind of what it means to be a woman, the ways in which womanhood is constructed to give status with the male gaze, endanger women, and then hold them responsible when they are victimized. Welcome, Jessica. Thank you.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: I just finished your book, Why Women Are Blamed for Everything, explaining victim blaming of women subjected to violence and trauma. And I wanted to thank you for the book because I really related to it and um, I wanted to get a sense. What has been the reception like for this book? Has it been um, universally accepted as something that women all over the world can relate to?
1: Yeah, it has, which which I was, honestly, I was surprised about and I was nervous about because for me writing it, I'm white and I'm English and, you know, it's written in English as well. Um, and there's always the chance that you're going to alienate groups of women, um, you know, women that are sort of speak a different language that live a completely different life, different cultures, different religions, different backgrounds, different ethnicities. And so I was nervous writing the book that I was going to try to include as much research from, uh, scholars from different backgrounds and different countries and, um, different cultures. There's sections in the book about cultural victim blaming, religious victim blaming and things like that. And I wanted to include it. But the reality is a lot of psychological literature that focuses on this generally focuses on white Western women's experiences. So, you know, writing the book and putting it out, I wanted to make sure that it was sort of universally useful, but I wasn't sure if it was. But yeah, it seems as though it is. Um, And women from all over the world have been contacting me um, saying that it's, you know, just brought up so much for them, and that they've related to it so much. So I'm glad that that's happened, um, and I'm I'm glad that women feel like that. Really, you know, you start
0: off with some statistics, and mm. I'm just going to read some of the the ones that I thought were um, really important. Thirty, you said, thirty to fifty percent of women have experienced domestic violence, and I wasn't sure if this was in England or across the world. And there's three times more sexual violence perpetrated against girls and boys in childhood. And of those who are prostituted, um, 81% of them have experienced some sort of sexual violence or harm. Um, mm-hmm. This 30 to 50% actually seems low, <laughs> um, given yeah, you know, yeah, what yeah. I know about you know, women's experiences. I just wanted to share this quick anecdote. There's a a woman in the U.S. who's a filmmaker named Angela Shelton. And she actually just said about, she, she's a documentary filmmaker, she said about going around the country um, interviewing people with her name. So she just looked up her name and, you know, however many people, I think there were 30 people maybe with her name. And as she interviewed them, one of the sort of conclusions of her interview was, was that 70% of the people with her name had experienced sexual violence, you know, or trauma. And so that's why I've just anecdotally, I just thought, wow, you know, maybe, maybe it's, it's more the norm than the exception.
1: Wow, that's amazing. I've not, yeah, that's like, like it's such an interesting methodology. Yeah so you you're probably right and so what we have generally uh, globally is a one in 3 or a one in 2 statistic when it comes to domestic violence by male partners and ex partners um but i would agree with you it's probably higher actually and um i think in some cases the reason we have this one in 3 or one in 2 statistic is because loads of women and girls don't actually recognize that they've ever been subjected to domestic violence harassment or abuse by men so um what we could do really is with much better methodology and longitudinal studies and um, studies that really explain to women and girls what male violence actually is so that they can then, I guess, recognize it when it comes to doing this type of research, because we know from research methodology in this area that Even if you ask women things like, have you ever been raped? There's going to be so many women that say no, who have actually been raped because they don't fully identify with that word or they don't understand that what happened to them was a rape because of rape myth stereotypes and because of their own self-blame and the way they were blamed by other people and stuff.
0: Yeah, I think there was a part of your book where you were talking about the question of uh, that you asked having your partner initiate sex while you were asleep and yeah. they felt like it was normal and yeah. and of course if you're unconscious <laughs> you're not giving consent so yeah, yeah. so the the normalization of basically sexual coercion right what do you suggest is one way that we can educate women and you know men around what is acceptable behavior what is consent and to help them recognize what is harm
1: I think we need to be talking about it just really broadly. So like a lot of people go, oh, you should be taught it in schools, but schools isn't enough. That's a mistake, I think. Um, So I think we need to be talking about it broadly. It needs to be featuring in things like, you know, dramas, soaps, documentaries. We need to be talking about it in schools, obviously. It needs to be um, a cultural change in that even families and parents and carers are talking about this very, very clearly. There also needs to be um, this constant challenging of misogyny in society for any of this to work because I, I believe it's a mistake to believe that men and boys will simply stop these global behaviors if you just tell them that they're wrong and you just educate them. I just don't think that'll work. I don't think there's any evidence that education would change such an embedded disregard, hatred and oppression of women and girls. I don't think it's an education issue. I think it's a values issue and like cultural. I think it's a lot more embedded than just like, oh, we're going to teach men and boys that this is wrong. And then they just won't do it. So like, if we talk about consent or we talk about, you know, um, like initiating sex or performing sex acts on a woman or a girl who's asleep, to me, that's not an education issue. That's not like they, do- it's not that they're like, oh, I thought that was okay. Like, oh, I'm so glad you- that you told me it wasn't. And now I'm never going to do it again. I don't think that's what'll happen. I just don't. I think it's more to do with their values and what they believe about women and girls and what they believe about their own entitlement. And that's deeper than that, I think.
0: If we're talking about heterosexual relationships, if men, boys and well, boys aren't, let's say, hopefully are not having sex, but if men are trying to push boundaries, you know, of their female partners all the time, I feel like part of what we need to do as women is there's always this, this kind of cliche that, you know, self-love is like the root of some of the issues that we have is... And that, that's why we allow our boundaries to, to be fluid, but that's victim blaming, right? That's like self-blame, putting the responsibility on the woman rather than on the man for his behavior. But, mm. but how do we help create, you know, and I wasn't sh- clear about this from the book, because I believe in providing consciousness to women, but to what extent does that actually then, is that an act of victim blaming? versus just helping to educate us about what is acceptable and what should be our standards that we need to sort of re-socialize ourselves to not define our worth by how desirable we are to men or whether they want to sleep with us.
1: Mm -hmm. So I think that this is one of those issues where people, I think, can get a bit mixed up with what I'm trying to say. So I'm not saying you have, but like, I I do get this quite a lot with other people where they'll say, well, um, are you, are you saying that women and girls just don't need education? They don't need this information? Like, no, not at all. I think the information is important. What I'm arguing is that information and education is not protective. So it doesn't matter how much you educate a woman or girl about these things. If a man is going to abuse them or rape them or harass them or oppress them or traffic them, it's going to happen anyway because education is not protective and there's no evidence. That education is protective so for example you could use this in any other in any other form of oppression this argument would be exactly the same so if we took the um time to educate um let's say black children about racism and institutional racism systemic racism and microaggressions and all of that 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 doesn't mean that it will happen to them less it doesn't mean that they can then protect themselves from it in any way it means that they might be aware of it and they might be able to see it and think oh that's what's happening there that's why i'm being treated differently but it won't stop the perpetrators it won't stop these people with privilege and power over them doing it to them and i feel exactly the same way about misogyny in that you can give women and girls all of this information and you can say look this is what this means and this is how people are treating you and this is what happens you know when you're being objectified and this is what sexualization is and this is why you know we're against porn and this is why we don't support prostitution as a form of sex work or career but in reality those systemic and institutional oppressions towards women that then intersect with things like race disability class and things like that they're going to carry on they're going to carry on anyway so I believe in things like education, consciousness raising and stuff like that. But I do not believe that they will reduce the oppression of women and girls globally. I don't think they're protective. I don't. And one of the reasons that I feel that is that um, even feminists, authors, academics, activists, advocates that are very well versed in things like sexual violence, domestic violence, oppression, misogyny, they're still as likely to be victimized by men as any other women or or girls out there. So I think it's a bit of self psychological self-protection that we tell ourselves that the more educated we are and the more educated other women and girls are, that they'll be able to protect themselves and we'll be able to protect ourselves. But that's not what happens in reality. And that's a really bitter pill to swallow, unfortunately. I love
0: that you use the race example, because I always try, you know, there are certain things that are normalized in activism for one group. So like Black Lives Matter, you know, anti-racism efforts, but somehow it's not normalized for the other groups, especially women. right? Yeah, I agree agree with that. And BLM conversations in the U.S. here for the past, I guess it's been around two months now. I, I'm intersectional in my approach, and I actually believe, like, if we were to give a, a drawing, you know, I believe sexism and misogyny is the root of all forms of violence and bigotry. And so it's like the trunk of a tree versus racism, which is like a branch. And so you can't talk about the branch unless you also talk about the trunk, right? Because it's just gonna regrow. Mm-hmm. And so I have been basically a lone voice in saying, well, because all of these nonprofits in the domestic violence space, In the meetings that I've been participating in, they're all starting to implement, quote-unquote, anti-racism trainings and efforts. And I've been saying to them, well, when are we going to have the anti-sexism trainings? Because teaching about the power and control wheel is not the same as making sure that the people who are working with the survivors actually also have an anti-sexist, pro-feminist lens.
1: Mm, Mm-hmm.
0: And there's always been crickets in response to this, which is very frustrating because you mentioned in your book about all the different people who participate in victim blaming. And isn't it so much more awful in a way when these people who are victim blaming are also the ones who are supposed to help you, that you go to for support and Mm. when you're trying to seek safety?
1: Yeah, I think that's one of one of the most damaging things that can happen to you as a woman or girl who eventually like discloses something that has been done to you and then you find yourself up against miso- more misogyny more victim blaming and people who will induce self blame um there's quite a lot of research in the UK especially that suggests actually it's mirrored in the US um that suggests that women and girls are fairly unlikely to start off from a position of self blame uh, after they've been raped or abused or something like that. But once they have had some sort of contact with police, especially police and the justice system, they're much more likely to blame themselves after the interviews. So what can often happen, I mean, like you'll know this with your work with advocacy and I've done it in in all the years I've done with women, that you sort of, you almost like psychologically start off from this point where you're like, you get to a place where you realize you've been raped or abused. And then you think, right, I'm going to, I'm going to find a way to report this. And you go into that feeling that you're going to report it. You're doing the right thing. It's really scary, but you, you know, you, you feel that you should report it and get justice. It's only once you're in that system that you start thinking, oh, hang on a minute, they're blaming me. They're questioning me now. Like, how am I on trial here? And all, everything gets flicked back over and you start thinking, why have I done this? Why Why am I in this police station? Why am I being interviewed? Like, Why have I gone to trial? I'm now being asked questions about me, my sex life, my background, what I was wearing, you know, and you, it's like victim on trial. And so that was, that's one of the reasons why I've actually stopped. I've made a choice to stop encouraging women and girls to report to the police when they're victims of, Sexual and domestic violence, and what I mean by that is that I'm not saying that I tell people don't do it. I'm saying that I tell women um, I don't encourage it. So I'm not the person that will go. I think you should go to the police. I think you should report it because it's because it's the best thing you should do. I actually don't do that anymore at all. And instead, if women or girls ever come to me and disclose, I'll say, "What do you want to do? Like, let's talk through all the options. You don't have to report if you don't want to, but if you do report, then I will give you all the information that you need." so that you know what you're about to face. Because I'm sick to death of police forces and local authorities and governments saying, women should report, women should report, and it's their responsibility to report because then you're held responsible for if it happens to another woman or girl if you didn't report, right? Well, I'm sorry, but I don't agree with that because the conviction rates are so incredibly low that women and girls are being put through these horrible processes. They're being blamed. They're being humiliated. They're being mocked. Their cases are being dragged through the press, and then our conviction rates are virtually zero. Like in the UK, the rape conviction rate is zero point two percent at the moment. Wow. So, like, what's the point in putting yourself through that?
0: I think in the US, the conviction rate is probably. I think it's like one to three percent. So it's a little slightly higher, but it's still, horrific, still though, horrible. isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Can you talk about, because this uh, sexual violence crimes and domestic violence are treated differently by police officers, as you say, in that, you know, the victim is put on trial instead of the perpetrator. And can mm. you talk about the sexism behind that? Because no other crime are you blamed. If you're a burglar, if, you know, if a burglar came to your home, you're not being put on trial as to like, why didn't you have, you know, uh, an alarm? Or why didn't you, you know check to
1: close your windows those kinds of questions i think you do i actually disagree i think you do get that but it's not fueled by the misogyny and the sexism which is what you're getting at i think is so victim blaming exists actually in most crimes i would suggest where it doesn't exist which is um which i've actually watched this quite carefully over the last few years is terrorism and that i think comes from racism so so i think what it is is that When you have victims of terrorism, for some reason, professionals, governments, local authorities, and even the general public, they hate and totally want that terrorist to be brought to justice. They don't blame the victims. They don't say to the victims things like, well, why were you in a restaurant? Or like, why weren't you wearing a bulletproof vest? Or why do you keep going on the tube? Like, people don't say that. They just say, the terrorist is in the wrong. The terrorist chose to do this. It's the terrorist ideology. It's the terrorist's motivations we should be focusing on. So I think that comes from things like racism and xenophobia and stuff like that towards the terrorists themselves, which means that for some reason the victims are then not blamed in the way they are in other crimes, but in most of the crimes, including even, you know, when I was running um, homicide cases and manslaughter cases, even when the victim is dead and we're sitting in a courtroom you know, dealing with the trial and we've got a man on trial for homicide, you will still have victim blaming in those cases where they're saying, well, she was drinking or she shouldn't have met him or she was on the dating app. And like, this person is dead. This woman is dead. Like the, like this is a murder case. Um, and yet we're still there trying to push some blame back on a dead woman. So I think some of it's about this embedded hatred towards women and girls, um, that we don't talk about. We're not ready to acknowledge as a global society. We, we have these, what I feel are like almost shallow conversations about misogyny and sexism, where we do the bare minimum to discuss it and the bare minimum globally to address anything about it. But then when you start talking about the sexualization with the simultaneous hatred of women and girls. So we want so, so society wants us to be sexy and wants us to be available, but doesn't want us to be intelligent, doesn't want us to be resourceful, doesn't want us to be in power of anything at all. Because when you start to make moves towards that, that's when women get attacked. So women in power, women who, I don't know, run for government or if they become very famous or very wealthy, or if women completely reject gender stereotypes and they, I don't know, present as androgynous or masculine in some way. That's where the hatred kicks in because you've stopped conforming at that point, and you're not performing what you're supposed to as this feminine woman in society. So there's some of that. I think there's also when it comes to domestic and sexual violence, and, actu- and actually, I'd say quite a lot of crimes against women and girls. There's an assumption that women and girls lie about everything and exaggerate everything. So there's the um, there's lots of studies that show that when you interview the and and survey the general public on their um, beliefs about how often women and girls make up that they've been raped or they've been in abusive context or that men have beat them up and stuff like that. People tend to guess that between 17 and like 30% of all women's reports are just made up. But actually statistics are like, it's like 0.2 to, like 0.2 to 1% have been found to be false. I think then there's this belief that when a woman speaks out and discloses, it's because she's doing it for some sort of emotional, manipulative, malicious reason, rather than any of it being real. So that has definitely sunk right into the criminal justice system, to the point where a woman or girl goes and discloses sexual abuse or rape, and the first thing that happens is that she's questioned whether she's just making up.
0: You've basically outlined that every single system... Because of society is sexist and misogynistic, and if the criminal justice system is like this, how do we change it so that we make make it useful to women and hold people accountable? Otherwise, if we're not using the systems that are having a certain intent and they're not living up to their potential, then we're just not holding any system accountable.
1: Mm. I mean, the answer to that is that we need, like, we need full reform in the justice systems like and that's not you know that's UK US it's everywhere really everywhere where there's an adversarial system where it becomes uh, a trial against the victim we need full reform also i would suggest there needs to be more evidence used um and like scientific and psychological evidence used in these cases so as a, as just one example at uh, 70% of women and girls who are raped will freeze. They won't fight back. They won't say anything. They, you know, they will freeze and they will stay still until that is over. And we know that that's normal. So we know from research from 2017 of thousands of women and girls, seven, just over 70% of them will freeze, right? How come that's not used in court? So, for, so in, in court, if a woman freezes or doesn't fight back, she'll be cross-examined by the defense being, well, why didn't you fight back? Well, what did you do? Or did you say no? How many times did you say no? Why didn't you just kick him? Why didn't you scream for help? Well, the research is very clearly stating that that's not a common response. So therefore, why aren't we using the evidence correctly in these cases? It's one of the reasons why, even though I have a PhD in uh, forensic psychology, I've recently decided to undertake legal training Because I want to be able to provide this type of evidence in criminal and in family law. Because I'm sick to death of women and girls being questioned with things that we have ample evidence is not correct. So, you know, I think that that needs to happen. I think we need more legal experts that are trained in psychology and trauma, and um, more feminist legal experts would be useful as well, especially in family court.
0: There's. Two issues with that that need to be—I want to address. So the first is, why can't we just move the goalposts so that we start off from a point where everybody recognizes that trauma includes fight, flight, freeze, or whatever the other one is, I think fawn, right? Um, Why can't we start off there? So no questions are even allowed to dispute that any of those possible reactions, or even beyond that, there's probably other reactions that we're not aware of, or aren't as common, can't be permitted in in the courtroom.
1: Yeah, that'd be amazing. (laughs) That would I mean, be amazing. I don't think we'll ever get to that but like I like I would agree with you. I would love okay. to see that. So for so so um years ago, right, about I would say I think it was about 4 or 5 years ago. Um there was some legal guidance that was put in around child sexual exploitation and child sexual abuse where there used to be an allowable defense in the UK where you could blame the parents of children, of girls who had been trafficked by external people and you were allowed to do, so they were allowed to say things like, well, if your daughter was being trafficked and raped, why didn't you protect them? And that was how they were able to sort of create these, um, stories for the, for the defense, for the jury, you know, oh, if this was really happening to your daughter, why didn't you notice? Why didn't you ring the police? Like, you know, if your daughter kept going missing and was being trafficked and was being raped by these men, what what was your role in that? And it sort of flips the whole case over. And um our Crown Prosecution Service um actually released guidance in 2016 to make that inadmissible. So you're not allowed to use that at all in court anymore. So from what you're saying, what you're suggesting, that is something that we are definitely already capable of doing, is going, well, actually you can't use that anymore as a defense. Right. Because, so it because would, they're being I, I agree with you as well.
0: Yeah, it's kind of because when you've said that, it made me think of Michael Jackson. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. because a lot of the people that I've spoken to about that, they their responses, well, the parents were benefiting financially. But that's actually part of the grooming process that you target people with vulnerability and you use their vulnerability to coerce behavior that they wouldn't otherwise agree to. And in this case, it's financial mm. vulnerability. So that's actually part of the grooming.
1: Yeah, 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 definitely.
0: So the the second part of what I was thinking about what you were saying is the adversarial system, it also, it can't be addressed without addressing current financial capitalistic system, right, because- Yeah, I agree. There's still gonna be lots of people who more power, which is men. And like this, this is the case in family court. Like if if men are the f- fathers or the moneyed party, people who are the social workers or the doctors, even if they're testifying to evidence that shows that the child or the woman is being abused, they're still going to be at risk of being targeted by the moneyed party, i.e., the father, if there's not an outcome that the father or the abuser wants mm-hmm. because he has mm-hmm. money. And so they're going to be vulnerable yeah. when they're even putting forth truthful statements. So we need to create a system where, so my, my personal view is we need to get rid of immunity <laughs> for all these people and create a system where they are disincentivized to, to either, you know, use the system or the system can identify, oh, this is like a, what is the term, legal term, I think a frivolous lawsuit, and get rid of it before it even, you know, has a way to um, take away the licenses of mental health professionals or lawyers who are actually advocating for victims.
1: Mm. We sort of had that in the UK for a while. So we had um, a system called Legal Aid, which essentially meant that if you didn't have the money to respond to a case, and you could prove your income was below a certain threshold which was actually quite a high threshold originally um then you could access legal aid which meant that you know if say for example your male ex-partner was earning a lot of money and was able to like keep trying to take you to court for things or trying to get injunctions lifted or access to kids you would have full access to legal aid through our government and that went on for a long period of time and it was a, it was really really like the safety net for thousands and thousands of people that needed it. And then when the Conservatives got back into government, one of the first things they did was they stripped legal aid. So you can't get it anymore for this, for those reasons. So we originally did have a system that would protect you from that because the legal aid enabled you to have access to thousands and thousands of pounds of legal support um, that you either didn't have to pay for at all if you were under a certain threshold or you only had to pay a certain amount towards um, like a percentage, like ten percent of it or five percent of it, and you could split it over installments, and you could split it over years and things like that. So um, there was sort of a there was kind of a system in place, but it's gone now. So we're now in the same position as you. And I hear from women all the time where um, you know their ex is really wealthy and has and has access to lawyers, and they they just it's just a joke. Like the the women are losing their children. They're losing cases left, right, and center. There's nothing anyone can do about it because essentially the only way they'd be able to fight those cases is if they were also very wealthy and had access to incredible lawyers and a load of legal resources. So, um, I do agree with you. I think that essentially what we've created is a system where money talks, you know, and that's not justice, is it?
0: Mm -mm, No. And, but even if you did have money, you're still going to be up against a system where they are victim blaming you know you yeah, might exactly. it might not infla- get you the just outcome because you're going to have judges and forensic psychologists who from the beginning from the outstart believe that women make up
1: lies yeah yeah yeah
0: i mean what are what are your thoughts around how we can either create p- protocols i mean you have various assessments would it be helpful to have assessments to suss out someone's victim blaming likelihood, or sexism and misogynistic kind of beliefs and belief systems, and keep them from being in- appointed to positions where they might have these sexist beliefs create harm.:
1: I am actually really interested in this. Um, and I, with uh, you know because I create psychometrics as well. Yes so one of the things i would really love to see is just some basic attitudinal testing in police officers social workers psychologists counselors um you know legal uh, professionals judiciary and the jury actually but i feel quite strongly when it comes to juries right i feel really strongly about this as well with with other issues so racism homophobia and misogyny and victim blaming attitudes because the way it works in the uk is you get 12 random people selected for the jury and there is no screening of those people whatsoever so you could have for all you know you could have a load of really i don't know let's say islamophobic people on that jury and their values and biases could actually be the thing leading that case but nobody would know because nobody's done any attitudinal testing. So nobody's been screened out. You could have people that were extremists and you wouldn't even know, like on lots of different issues there. So you could have people, for example, that I don't know, that were extremely classist and believe that poor people deserve everything they get because they don't work hard enough. They're on benefits, they're on income support and they're, you know, they're a waste of time and money and things like that. And you would never know. And I feel very similar about that with professionals. So. The research shows when it comes to victim blaming and misogynistic attitudes and rape myth acceptance and things like that, that professionals working in this field tend to have similar levels of negative attitudes towards victims as the general public do. So even if you've been, I don't know, say for example, you're like me and you're a psychologist and you've been working in this field for years, if you were to survey enough forensic psychologists and then enough of the general public, and then you looked at the average responses, there will not be a statistically significant difference between those attitudes. And that's another reason why I strongly believe that this isn't just an education thing. Because you would argue, wouldn't you, that the forensic psychologists know all this, they work in it, they're professionals, so therefore they shouldn't victim blame, and yet they do. Because it's deeper than that. So I do, I do think that attitudinal testing would be useful. The only problem with it is that attitudinal testing is self-report measures. And if you're a professional and you know what's going on, you're just going to answer them all like, you know, disagree, 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 disagree to all of these horrible statements about, you know, victim blaming or misogyny or racism. You're going to know what you're doing. Like I do. If I ever go in through a service and someone gives me some sort of attitudinal test or personality test, I know exactly what they are. You know, so that's that's one of the problems with attitudinal testing is that self-report measures are very, they can be very susceptible to bias and also to false responding and what we call socially desirable responding, which is where like which is pretty self-explanatory. It's where uh, people deliberately respond in a socially desirable manner so they get the best score and they don't actually respond truthfully. So that could happen. Well, we, we you know. what about pairing the
0: attitudinal testing? with data around their outcomes and their decisions. So, for example, judges, if they keep um, not believing domestic violence victims and placing children with the abusers, if their attitudinal testing show that they believe victims, but their outcomes in their court cases show otherwise, they actually have some harsher penalty because maybe they were deceptive or purposely deceptive Mm. in their attitudinal testing. And (laughs) I don't know, I'm just... (laughs) <laughs> I'm, I'm making that suggestion. But but I also want to ask you with regard to um, this, because this it reminded me, I don't know, have you heard about this case happened recently? Um, in the US a few weeks ago, I think there was a New Jersey judge, a female judge, who during COVID, there was a, a, it's like a, a guy who pretended he was a postal delivery person, and shot and killed her son and injured her husband. Did you hear about that case? Yeah, I think I did, actually. Okay, so it's a very interesting case from the little that I read. She was assigned to deal with the money issues of Deutsche Bank with regard to Epstein. Okay, so that was Mm. a little kind of um, fishy. Um, And so a lot of people who are affiliated with Epstein have mysteriously died or been injured or targeted in some way. Mm -hmm. So that was one thing. But the other thing is that the person who killed her son who opened the door, he, he was a very well-known male supremacist. I'm not going to use MRA because Michael Flood has said, let's not use that term, right? <laughs> and yeah, we, don't, yeah. we don't want to use the word activist for anybody who's actually trying to uphold status in, the, in their power and privilege. Um, so there was a male supremacist, who a very well-known one, who had recently killed a rival male supremacist in the U.S., And in California, actually. And so this same guy knocked on the door of this judge, killed her son. And so subsequently, she wrote something in the press. And given that the person who killed her son was a male supremacist, I thought she would at least bring up the issue of sexism and misogyny. She didn't at all. Mm. All she wrote about was that judges need more protection. (laughs) And I was Uh like, what the is going, you know, like, it's just incredible, especially given that she was assigned the Epstein Deutsche Bank case. So I just felt like, how can you not even speak about that when that's not the issue? It's not a mental health issue, right? Because she alluded to it as if we need to have protection from litigants with mental health issues.
1: Yeah, I, I well, this, I, I sometimes I wonder, you know, whether yeah. Sometimes I wonder whether that's like editors that have cut things out, you know, when you write, you know, I don't know if you've ever done this, but you like write an article for a big like publication and then they go, oh yeah, write this. And then they, and then they go, oh, we made some little edits and then it comes out and you're like, where the hell is that whole section gone? And they're like, oh, we didn't feel that it was, you know, whatever. So like, sometimes I wonder if it's that cause I've had that happen to me a few times, but then on the other hand, it does, it's so interesting how people will jump to this sort of, oh, they're mentally ill and, they're, they're vulnerable and they're dangerous rather than looking at the fact that it's it's not that. It's an attitude. It's an attitude towards women and girls. It's misogyny or something else. And it's so much easier, isn't it, to individualize it into the brain and go, oh, you know, they're mentally ill. Like, no, they're not. They made a choice. Like, there's no evidence there at all that that person had no capacity and had no idea what they were doing. Is completely confused. There's nothing there at all. This person has a pattern of behavior and then they've chosen to go and commit a misogynistic crime. Like, why can't we just look at it like that? And we just, I don't think we're capable of it at the moment. I really don't, I don't I, we're not ready for it for some reason.
0: This intersection of sort of giving, uh, attributing to the perpetrator some sort of excuse for their behavior mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. the U.S. Has, has grown a lot of support amongst advocates who supposedly are representing victims, and so in in the U.S. in New York especially, there's a lot of talk about you know the abuser's trauma being a relevant factor in deciding whether or not we should have certain interventions, uh, and that if the abuser had a history of racism or poverty, then we're double victimizing the abuser, and and this decentering of the victim, it seems to. Be invisible to the people who are doing it, and I'm wondering if it's happening in, in the UK as well.
1: Yeah, I think I think it's very similar to what you've just said. Really, I think that we, um, I also think that we're almost. I don't know whether this is the same for you, but with I I sometimes feel like we're moving towards a culture of excusing perpetrators altogether. Like there's so much. There's so much research and activism going on where it's like, oh, you know, they only did it because they had a bad childhood or they needed extra support or, you know, they were abused before and that's why they do it to women. Like, bullshit. Like, absolutely not. Like, I I think that... What that actually does as well is that it patho- uh, pathologizes victims of abuse, that they're going to become perpetrators and that that's completely normal. It's actually not common at all. And it's, it is really abnormal for that to happen. Um, but I keep seeing more and more um, research papers and social media posts and blogs that is almost trying to like normalise some of these behaviours and like, oh, isn't it awful because they have a trauma history and that's why they rape and that's why they murder women. Like, no, I'm sorry. I don't I don't want to live in a world like that at all. Like I, I would rather than be held responsible. So many people are abused um, and oppressed in childhood and in their lives and they don't commit any violent or oppressive crimes towards anyone else. It really worries me that we're moving towards this, like excusing their behaviours. And it
0: only seems to apply to women and no other forms of oppression or victims, groups of victims.
1: Oh, I know. Yeah, I completely agree with that.
0: Like when you were talking about like terrorism being the crime that there's less victim blaming, do you think it would make a difference if we were to start shifting the language of domestic violence and gender-based crimes as crimes against humanity so that it's a human rights issue and we started enacting laws around that and shifting the perception?
1: Um I think that there are already, I would say that there are already enough messages and direction in some of our human rights laws anyway that should be protecting us from this. So, you know, sometimes people will say, oh, we need more laws or we need more legislation. I would actually suggest that quite a lot of the laws and legislation is in place. We ignore it we actually just don't use it. I've written a, I've written something on this uh, about a year ago on how to use human rights law to protect girls from sexual exploitation and human trafficking. Because when you look into the the um, laws legislation and the directives like that we've agreed to actually we already have all those protective measures those rules and every we just don't use them for women and girls. We just don't use them. So
0: thank you so much. So at the end of every episode, we ask a series of questions of every guest. It's called the Engendered Questionnaire. And the first question is, what is at stake in the struggle to end gender-based violence and oppression?
1: I just think women's lives, women's livelihood is at stake. Women's well-being, women's mental health, women's rights are at stake. I think that's what we should be focusing on is that Sometimes it feels like, well, actually, I'm not going to say that this is me saying this, but if you've ever read Dale Spender or any Dale Spender books, she wrote about this in the 80s and she said that with every step forward we make in feminism and women's rights, you will have a massive backlash against it. And I feel like that's what we're seeing happen. And we've got to be really aware of the fact that, women have started like globally to make these moves forward. Although most of that is white women and most of that's in developed world. Right. And we're making these like steps and going, oh, look, we have equality here and now we have these laws and now we have that. And now we've got this massive uprising of male supremacy and um with racism mixed in with misogyny, where you know, and all all these intersecting issues that come into the hatred of women and this pushing back. And then and then on top of that, now you have the hypersexualization and objectification of women mixed in with it. Um so that I like, yeah, it's it's huge for me. It's like I feel like this is Pivotal for us. What gives you hope? What gives me hope is younger women finding radical feminism earlier. So I've noticed that more and more young women, I would say, and girls, so I would say like 16 to 25, seem to be finding radical feminism faster than we did. So it's um, radical feminism tends to be attributed to like older women and associated with women, I would say like 40 to 60 and older than that, actually. But I, you know, have a very large following on social media and I watch social media and there's so many young lesbians um, that are, you know, starting to really read around and understand radical feminism a lot earlier. And that gives me a lot of hope because I just think if we can get yeah, this like next generation of radical feminists that totally get it. And they're so much more resourceful. And like, I just think they're, they're better educated. They have access to more things than we did. And the generation that was before me and the generation before that, I think it's going to be hard road, but I'm really proud of them. There's so many more younger radical feminists than we realize.
0: And final question. What can we do more of less of start or stop to end gender-based violence and oppression?
1: I think we need to stop calling it gender-based violence. (laughs) Uh, We should stop doing that. I think we should call it sex-based oppression because that's what it is. Um, I don't think that we are oppressed globally because of gender roles or stereotypes. I think it's because of our biological sex and because of the, of us being female and, I think that's that would be a good start is that we need a, well it's not really a start it's almost a going back to the original understanding of sex based depression from the 60s and from before the 60s this understanding that it is femaleness that is oppressed it's not the way you present it's not the way you identify it it's being female and um, you know, your fertility being oppressed, your access to rights being oppressed, your uh, role in the world and your capability, your competency, and the way that you are dehumanized, dementalized as a female. So I think that we need to get back to basics in our feminism um, and make sure that feminism is for women, by women. And I think we need to stop um, making feminism and women's rights movements to be like, a movement for everybody and everything. I think that we should be proud that it's a female liberation movement and that we don't have to centre men and we don't have to include men's issues and things like that, which I, I think people are really struggling with. We start to hear these messages like, oh, feminism is equalism. Feminism is for everybody. I actually don't agree with that. I think that we should be proud that it's a female movement. So I think that would make a big difference.
0: Well, thank you, Jess. It's been a pleasure and an honor speaking with you. And I encourage all of the listeners to buy and read your book.
1: Thank you. Uh, It got bought by a publisher and it's coming out everywhere on the 27th of August, and it'll be in the US in all good bookstores, I think within a couple of months of the August release in the UK. But you can already get it on like Amazon and Barnes and & Noble and Waterstones and WH Smith and all that sort of stuff. But it'll be in U.S. bookstores uh, shortly as well. Well, we'll definitely be sharing that those links. Thank you.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of Engendered. The show is sponsored by Can Do It Q&A, a peer-based knowledge platform that connects social service providers in advice, community, and learning. You can join Can Do It Q&A for free at qna.kanduit.com. I'd love to get your feedback and hear any questions or suggestions you may have for the show. Please email us at engenderedpodcast at gmail.com with your questions.